Welcome to the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. The EHS exists to explore all aspects and all periods of the history of Christianity. And in our podcasts, we welcome guests to discuss a wide range of topics. If you want to know more about the EHS, then visit our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com, or our social media pages. joining us in this EHS podcast episode. I'm your host, Angela Platt. I'm completing my PhD at Royal Holloway, looking at love and religious families in the 18th and 19th centuries. I'm pleased to be joined today by Professor Francis Knight, the current president of the EHS. Francis is Professor Emeritus of the History of Christianity at the University of Nottingham, and also works as an independent academic consultant. She studied at King's College London and the University of Cambridge, and after a British Academy postdoctoral fellowship at Selwyn College, Cambridge, moved to the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Wales. She taught there until 2009, when she was appointed to the University of Nottingham. Her research interests cluster around the Church of England from the late 18th century to the present, and the interactions between Christianity and culture, more generally at the time when the late 19th century gave way to the early 20th century world. Her books include The 19th Century Church in English Society in 1995, The Church in the 19th Century in 2008, Victorian Christianity at the Fin de Siècle in 2015, and the jointly authored Welsh Church from Reformation to Disestablishment in 2007. She's currently writing a book on Ebenezer Howard and the Religious Roots of the Garden City Movement for OUP's Spiritual Lives series. And indeed, this book on Ebenezer Howard is the subject of our interview today. I'm so delighted to be here today with Professor Frances Knight talking about her upcoming biography on Ebenezer Howard, which will be published as part of the Spiritual Lives series with Oxford University Press. So Frances, your new work is, as noted, a biography on Ebenezer Howard, who is most well known for his own book, his publication called Tomorrow, a Peaceful Path to Real Reform in 1898. So I was wondering if we could start off this interview by you telling us a bit about this book. What's it about and what specifically made it famous? Yeah, thanks, Angela. Um, perhaps it's better known um, under its other title of Garden Cities of Tomorrow. It was reissued under that title in 1902, but essentially it's the same book. And I tend to just call it Tomorrow. Uh, so really, um, it is a plan for addressing the, the problems of both the city and the countryside by creating the Garden City, which was intended to be a new form of social and economic life that would combine the best elements of both the town and the countryside and also address one of the major issues that was troubling people in the late 19th century, that's to say the constant flow of people from the countryside to overcrowded cities, which of course produced chronic overcrowding in the cities and also depleted the countryside. So the plan that he outlines in the book is that new communities should be built from scratch on 
plots of around 6,000 acres on agricultural land. And the idea with agricultural land was that it could be purchased relatively inexpensively and that new communities of around 30,000 people should be settled in these towns. And the money was going to be raised by selling shares and taking out mortgages. And the idea was that these communities would be self-contained, so there would be no commuting. He was incredibly keen to avoid the um, issues surrounding commuting. And, of course, people would enjoy within these communities a full range of cultural facilities, and they'd be very healthy because everybody would have a garden, they'd be growing their own fruit and veg and so on. And there'd be lots of green space for people to engage in fitness and sport and um, children playing around and all that kind of thing. So these ideas, some of them obviously could seem quite radical, moving large populations of people out of the cities and into the, into the countryside. But Ebenezer Howard was really skillful at holding different opinions together. So he would state on the one hand that there was going to be cooperation and community funded projects, something that would seem somewhat left-leaning. And then he would state on the other that there would be private enterprise and individual initiative. He would say on the one hand that there'd be communal housing, but also family privacy. He was extremely skillful in kind of operating from the centre and sort of pulling all these strands of opinion into, into one, one place. And much of the book, really, I suppose you would say, is a detailed business case. It's not particularly long. It's about 150 pages in 14 really quite short chapters. And it's kind of bristling with um, facts and figures and acreages and revenues and returns. So it reads a bit like a business case. And you can see that he was doing that because he needed to try to persuade people with money, rich philanthropic types, to be willing to invest. Obviously, if nobody was willing to invest in this, this, this plan would never get off the ground. But at the same time, he wanted to inspire people of a more utopian mindset who were in search of some kind of alternative lifestyle. And he borrows ideas from a variety of people. Um, so Alfred Marshall, the economist, um, James Silk Buckingham, Thomas Spence, Herbert Spencer, people like that. But he takes these at their ideas and then he sort of fashions them into what he describes as his own unique combination of proposals. And, and this, I think, is also really important, is that he illustrates it with diagrams, which he draws himself. So the garden cities which he depicts in his diagrams are circular uh, with um, radial roads extending outwards and um, an agricultural greenbelt around the edge and the main facilities in the centre. So it would be easy for people. These were designed to be spaces that would be easy to navigate your way around. To answer the second part of your question about what made it famous, um, yeah, well, I mean, he wasn't terribly well known. 
but he was extremely good uh, at self-promotion. And having got the book published, he had some difficulty in actually getting the book published. But once he had got it published, he promoted it really heavily amongst, particularly amongst uh, his own circles of London nonconformity. And he got good support from the press. And of course, the meetings that he had where he lectured about it were often reported in the press. And certainly for people in the London nonconformist world, his world, it appeared to be providing the kind of, you know, solutions to the issues that people were worrying about. So um, people who know a bit about the religious history of this period perhaps are familiar with books like um, Andrew Meehan's Bitter Cry of Outcast London and William Booth's Darkest England and the Way Out. So, you know, those books which had diagnosed the difficult issues surrounding um, overcrowding and housing and poor social conditions. These were the sorts of um, these were the sorts of people who um, became attracted to um, to Howard and uh, and his ideas, and so the Garden City Association was actually formed um, just six months after the book was published in eighteen ninety nine. So the book's published in eighteen um, ninety eight, and then the Garden City Association comes out is uh, formed in eighteen ninety nine with a sort of mixture of leading nonconformists, liberal MPs and members of the London County Council. And of course, some of those people were, um, you know, wear, wore several of those hats at the same time. And then the first Garden City um, is founded in Letchworth in 1903. So it's a really, the impact of the book is really rapid. Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly is a Garden City then? So, um, well, a garden city is, um, the first one was founded in Letchworth in um, 1903. And then the next one, the second one was, was founded in Welling, Welling Garden City, um, after the First World War. And uh, you can see, actually, in both of those, um, both those communities, um, the plan that he lays out in the book being put into action. So you can actually see the um, circular uh, arrangement of the roads uh, and you can see the, uh, the radial pattern. Uh, you can see the um, central facilities being located um, in the middle and the whole thing being designed to be really easy to move around. Um, Letchworth in some ways worked better as a garden city than Wellin because Wellin was closer to London and so it was always, um, uh, you know, there was always that tendency for it to be a bit of a commuter, um, commuter town, uh, which I suppose is what it's become. But, um, you know, it's a very pleasant, it's very, there's an enormous amount of space, it's very green um, and it's... Uh, a kind of an optimum situation for a healthy lifestyle and <clears throat> I mean garden cities spread all over the world actually so those are the first two the true garden cities but I did the idea for the garden city spread all over the world and uh, his ideas also fed into the post-war new towns so um, that is a um, 
that is a kind of legacy of the Garden City movement, which has had an impact on town planning. And the term is still used. It's still people talk about garden villages and garden suburbs. You know, that kind of language is still um, lent on quite heavily, actually, at the present time. So thinking back to your book then and reflecting on what others have already written about Ebenezer Howard before we start to think about where yours fits in that gap, as it were. What have other scholars already highlighted about Ebenezer Howard? Has it mainly focused on this garden city um, idea that you've talked about? Yeah. Um, So he is seen as the father of town planning. Um, Town planning as a as a discipline didn't it didn't exist until the early 20th century and the whole notion of town planning you know people just allowed towns to kind of develop really um so so town planning is something that was a new um a development that he is seen as uh, responsible for uh, so they focused on that uh, they've also focused on the fact that garden city movement spread into other parts of the world as i've just mentioned and the way in which his ideas were, of course, he was, you know, after the second, he was certainly dead by um, after the Second World War. But his ideas were picked up by a number of influential people in both uh, Britain and America and elsewhere and fed into um, town planning in other parts of the world. And certainly um, his books have been very books about him um, tend to be very heavily read Um I know, I know that as a result of having borrowed them from um, University of Nottingham Library. You know, books about Ebenezer Howard tend to be quite dog-eared, and then people would recall them. So it was evident that there were, you know, social geographers, I'm assuming, or um, historians of one type or another elsewhere in the university who were interested in Ebenezer Howard. So then thinking about your biography, then, how does that compare to the research that already exists about Ebenezer Howard? Um, how is your work unique? Well, I'm specifically looking at him and his religious context. Um, and it, the existing work about him does tend to play down his religious influences. It will be mentioned slightly, uh, but I think certainly not. It, it's never been given the full exploration that it deserves. And obviously, you know, as a historian of religion, that's what interests me particularly. Um, and I was particularly struck, and this was one of the things which actually got me onto this project in the first place, by the fact that he, shortly before his death in 1928, he left various instructions for his biographer there was a, a debate going on amongst his family about who should be asked to write the official biography of him after he died. Um, and he was having some input to that in the last months of his life. And he said on a number of occasions, I want my biographer to remember that in everything I did, the religious motivation was paramount. And it was actually reading that that made me think, aha, here is somebody who is you know perfect for the new what was then the new spiritual live series that was just being launched by tim larson uh with oxford university press so yeah his religious influences well he's um he's a product of late 19th century london nonconformity. he's a congregationalist um 
his father was a devout congregationist. He, as a child, worships at the Poultry Chapel in the city of London. And for a short while, uh, when he was in his late teens, about 19, he worked as secretary for um, Joseph Parker, who was one of the most famous nonconformist preachers of his day in the late, um, late 19th century. He then has some sort of religious crisis in the 1870s and he goes to Chicago where he encounters a very wide range of different types of Christianity. And he meets the spiritualist Cora Richmond. And um, later on he gets interested in theosophy, but he takes on all these layers of different religious ideas kind of on top of his basic free church instincts. So he's not, as I think some people have imagined, kind of casting away one set of religious beliefs uh, in favour of another set, or as I think some, some people have also hinted, um, casting away a kind of um, nonconformist upbringing in, in favour of a type of agnosticism. But he is, um, uh, he's kind of melding all these ideas together and, and holding them together. Um, and it's it's evident that he, he he has at various points in his life uh, moments of kind of heightened religious emotion when he sees himself as doing the divine will and he sees God as directly intervening um, and requiring him to do things. And I you know I think it would be fair to say that he saw himself as kind of literally called upon to build the new Jerusalem. Um, I mean, he obviously, he uses that famous, um, those famous lines from William Blake, Jerusalem, uh, quite, quite frequently. And um, yeah, that's what he sees himself as needing, as being required to do, to actually um, very single-mindedly devote himself to trying for the 20th century to build a new world order. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What is the New Jerusalem? Well, he, he envisages the New Jerusalem as the Garden City, you know, the perfect, the perfect environment for humanity to flourish, where people can live in decent housing, uh, can be um, employed close to home, uh, can enjoy a whole range of cultural and uh, religious and uh, social activities, um, and where they can have long, healthy um, and fulfilling lives, and where people can cooperate with each other. He is a great believer. He's very, he has a very optimistic view of human nature, and he has a great, a very strong belief in humanity's ability to cooperate with each other when the circumstances are um, are right. So, um, yeah, his vision of the New Jerusalem uh, is uh, is what the Garden City should be. Now, obviously, he was disappointed because Letchworth was never really quite like that. And um, that's what caused him to want to have another go and build a second garden city in Wellin. 
And after that, he wanted to have a third go. And, you know, he would have, his, his ideal would have been to see um, a whole kind of network of interconnected garden cities um, across Britain. Um, so that was the vision. Um, he was disappointed sometimes, but um, he never really, um, he never really gave up on it. He, he always thought that it was that kind of optimistic sense that um, things would come right um, if only people would cooperate with each other. And, um, you know, if, if only um, uh, people would be kind of patient and um, try and um, serve the, you know, serve the, um, serve the best uh, endeavours of humanity. So, so your biography is looking at Ebenezer Howard and this garden city ideal that he's since been known for and, and suggesting that that's rooted in his religious background or religious views of the New Jerusalem. Is that right then? Yeah, that's, that's quite, a, quite, a neat, quite a neat summary. In your discussion on Ebenezer Howard's religious views, you talked about how he was melding different ideas together. And I was wondering if you can talk about him melding together, and you talk about this in your book as well, of course, if you can talk about him melding together uh, religion and science. How does he reconcile religion and science, and how does that lead to views of spiritualism? Yeah, well, he is um, he's very caught up with spiritualism. Uh, which, of course, is a massively popular movement from the mid-19th century until well after the First World War. And it's, it's still around a bit um, to this day. Um, so uh, Georgina Byrne, of course, has written about um, spiritualism and the Church of England in the period from 1850 to 1939. And I think that was, you know, that her, her work was helpful in helping us to understand that, um, you know, leading figures within the Church of England, like P Percy Dearmer, for example, uh, could also embrace spiritualism without seeing um, any kind of conflict or contradiction. Um, and it was evident that these, um, these nonconformists, these congregationists, were in exactly the same, the same mindset. So, so how does this work with reconciling religion and um, science. I suppose I would say that um, it's a kind of, it's a kind of, the, the idea is I suppose that if you can um, communicate with the dead, then that provides evidence for post-mortem existence. So that's the kind of quasi-religious part of it. But then it's also the pseudoscientific part is um, we see that with Howard um, following. He's, he's really following in the wake of various scientists of that particular era who were positing the existence of um, a kind of powerful invisible force, which they would sometimes call lumini luminiferous ether. Um, and this belief in luminiferous ether and the, the idea that there was a powerful uh, um, invisible force which might help to explain various supernatural phenomenon, such as um, how it would be possible to communicate with the dead, 
uh, was an idea that kind of hung around until uh, I think some point in the 1880s when it was discredited by physicists. But if you think of electricity as being a powerful invisible force, perhaps it's not that difficult to understand why people could have imagined that there were other types of powerful invisible forces that might be doing things and controlling things in the universe. And so, as I say, that, that idea was actually held by respectable scientists like Tyndall, um, who was a very eminent uh, physicist, I think, um, but eventually discredited. It's evident, however, that um, Howard continued. He obviously wasn't the scientist himself. He was simply following you know, the great scientific men of his day with whom he would have had a, you know, quite a significant respect for. Um, he, he, he hung on to the idea uh, well into the 20th century, actually. I mean, he's still talking about it in the, in the 1910s, um, you know, after it had been discredited. But um, it was, yeah, so it was really that sense that um, there is this kind of link between um, an invisible force that is helping us to understand um, things that, that at the moment we can't explain. And also this belief that um, communicating with the dead, which of course is something spiritualists were keen on doing, uh, helped to um, establish the idea of a post-mortem existence and actually helped to um, kind of shore up um, some of the central tenets of Christianity. So there's a kind of interesting relationship going on between Christianity, spiritualism and science, I think, which we see Howard being very interested in, um, in his, well, he was interested in it throughout his life, but he, um, he, he got interested in it um, as a young man. That leads nicely into my next question. Um, I want to ask about Howard's journey into spiritualism. And I think I want to make it a two-part question because I'm curious if you know of any instances where Howard tried to communicate with the dead as well. In, yes, interesting. Um, so his journey into spiritualism, well, I, I mentioned that he goes to Chicago. Um, so he actually, um, in the 1870s, as a young man, after he'd finished working as the secretary to Joseph Parker, um, with a couple of friends, uh, he decided that he wanted to um, go to America and kind of go, um, go exploring. Uh, and initially, he, um, he and his friends... Um, uh, take advantage of the Homestead Act and are given um, a large number of acres. Just They're just given this land uh, in order to um, cultivate it. So he had some experience trying to do that, not very successfully. Um, and after a, a year of kind of fairly um, traumatic farming, he decided that he was going to move to Chicago, where he was able to use his skill as a shorthand writer. I haven't actually mentioned this, but it was shorthand writing that he uh, was the means by which he earned his living throughout his life. And what is shorthand writing? Um, okay, well, Pittman's shorthand is a, which is what he he did. Um, shorthand is a means of recording um, speech in symbols quickly, uh, and then an accomplished shorthand writer will be able to read it back and turn it into text. So 
uh, we used to have shorthand typists who would be, well, generally women, of course, who would take shorthand, take letters, dictation, and then type them up. So that's what shorthand is. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he was a shorthand writer. And um, anyway, he's, so he's in Chicago at this point. We're in the early 1870s. And he is um, encountering a whole variety of different um, religious ideas. Uh, and clearly reading religious texts and going to all sorts of religious meetings. And he encounters this very famous spiritualist called Cora Richmond, who was an American woman. Um, and, uh, you know, within the world of spiritualism, you know, a significant and famous uh, figure. And she had clearly had a major impact on him. And uh, they remained friends, in fact, um, for the rest of her life. I think she died in the early 1920s. Um, So he comes back from Chicago. He would have encountered spiritualism, even if he hadn't gone to Chicago, because there was plenty of it in London. And um, his wife, Lizzie, um, also becomes very interested in spiritualism. I'm assuming initially as a result of his, his influence. She Quite interestingly, actually, she starts out as a sort of a typical evangelical Christian. We know this because then the letters that she wrote to him when they were engaged, before they were married, um, have survived. And uh, she is writing to him, you know, it's full of kind of typical evangelical sentiments uh, and, you know, concern for his uh, state of his soul and so on, because she's regarding him as, you know, kind of spiritually lax. Um, but over time, it's clear that she moves into being very interested in spiritualism. And they actually, you know, their, their, their religious viewpoints actually cohere um, from having been quite distinct. Um, after about 10 years marriage, it's evident that they thought very much along the same lines as each other. And she, um, unfortunately, w- had very poor health. So she got very interested in spiritual healing and went off to consult various people about um uh, you know what uh, what c- could be done to help her um so that was one of the ways in which she became interested in spiritualism but to answer the second part of your question did he uh, try and contact people i yes and lizzie is certainly one person that he did because she dies in 1904 and um, I, you know, I think it's evident that he, she's, she, she, she's an incredible, she was a very um, significant influence on him. And he um, does try to contact her. Uh, most, weird, he records somewhere that, uh, you know, when he would go to seances and when the light was good enough, he would write, obviously, in shorthand the messages that came through from the other world verbatim. Um, A lot of that stuff was destroyed by his second wife, unfortunately. Uh, But there are odd little bits and pieces uh, which indicate that he was trying to contact Lizzie. And I do wonder slightly about the, um, 
you know, how this worked when someone has remarried, as he did, uh, and is busy contacting their first wife in seances. Um, you know, whether this was regarded as a problem in any way or whether this was just regarded as normal. I was actually looking at Georgina Byrne's book um, earlier and noticed that Percy Dearmer, the noted Anglican theologian, his first wife dies in 1915. And um, according to his second wife, uh, he was busy contacting his first wife. Um, and she didn't seem to, that Nancy Dearmer, the second wife, didn't seem to be bothered by this. So maybe it was just regarded as kind of, you know, normal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I how much time he spent at, um, I, I think he did get particularly interested, actually, um, in the final years of his life in the 1920s um, in spirit. I mean, he was always interested in spiritualism, but I suspect he spent more time in seances. And he certainly thought he was looking forward to being reunited with um, with Lizzie and um, hearing more, perhaps, of the messages that she wanted to relay. Your comment on the impact that such seances with his with his dead wife might have had on his present domestic situation are really interesting. Uh, I wonder if you have any sense on what he would have done in seances or indeed what other religious figures might have done in seances, sort of not just how the process worked, but what kinds of questions were they asking their deceased spouses? Oh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um, I suspect that they were just waiting to hear what the messages were going to be. Mm. Um, so we know, you know, the one message that I do know that he recorded as having had from Lizzie <clears throat> was along the lines of, you've achieved more than you'll ever know. I mean, it was quite general. Um, true. He, I'm sure he, you know, I think we could say that he did achieve more than he ever knew. Uh, but they, you know, fairly non-specific, I would say. Um, but yeah, the extent to which religious figures were at seances kind of interrogating the spirit world, um, uh, it's not something I can um, offer you a clear answer on, I don't think, Angela. Mm, it's quite fascinating, though. Yeah, thanks for, for talking about that. Um, my next question for you about your biography, then, is, is to go a bit more general and ask you which sources did you consult for your research? Yes, well, I looked at the Howard papers and the Osborne papers in the Hertfordshire archives in Hertford. Uh, so uh, Osborne, um, Frederick Osborne was uh, one of the characters who was initially lined up to write the biography, in fact. And he, would, he was engaging in what we would call now oral history from about 1918. Uh, you know, recording people's memories of um, the early Garden City and things that Howard had said and so on. Um, so I've used his papers and then Howard's papers. Uh, I was actually there in March 2020 when COVID was just hitting. And of course, that's been a real issue uh, and obviously not one which I had foreseen. I had fortunately done quite a lot of research in Hartford. Uh, before COVID hit, uh, and I am planning to go um, in a couple of weeks from now and just finish off a few loose ends and try and track down a few things. But obviously that's not been ideal, um, the fact that the archives were shut for such a long time. 
the other thing I've used is the um, fantastically, um, uh, fantastically um, intriguing Garden City Collection. It's just known as the Garden City Collection, if anyone wants to Google it. And it's, um, it's in Letchworth and it is all, a, it is a collection of about a quarter of a million items in an amazing store, it's, it's an old farm, I think, but it's an amazing kind of warehouse um, farm building uh, in in Letchworth. And it's full of artifacts as well as documents. Uh, so they've collected all sorts of things. So, you know, I was allowed to kind of browse around in this storeroom and it's full of things like, um, well, Howard's desk and, um, the foot warmer of Adrian Fortescue, who's a distinguished Catholic theologian, who was also the parish priest in Letchworth. And of course, because Letchworth was full of creative makers and um, artists, you know, lots of paintings and examples of lead-free pottery. And there was a pram factory, the Marmot pram factory. So there were all these old prams. So there's a whole variety of actual, which I've never experienced before, actual physical artifacts that you can look at. Uh, but they've also got um, documents, some of which are available to look, look, at, look at online. Um, so some of them I was able to see um, in situ in Letchworth before COVID hit. Uh, and then other material I've looked at online. But the source which I've developed much more than I ever imagined I would as a result of uh, the inaccessibility of other material has been online newspaper searches, the Gale um, newspaper archives, uh, which made me realize uh, things like the importance of the Daily Mail actually in promoting um, the early Garden City movement. They were immensely uh, supportive uh, they were always publishing stories about um, what was going on in Letchworth and so on. And so in actually being able to kind of dig up stuff, which I would not, and of course nobody else, because you know, it hasn't been possible to search on newspapers until relatively recently. Um, that's enabled me to dig up stuff, which I wouldn't have found if I just restricted myself to the material in Hartford. And it should be said that the material in Hartford has, of course, been worked on by other historians. So some of that's quite well known. So in the course of your research, what, if anything, surprised you in looking at the archives, newspapers, or just the general research about Ebenezer Howard? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose um, one of the things which surprised me, although I knew this already, um, is the fact that the thing happened at all. You know, the fact that this um, fairly obscure shorthand writer uh, could go from the worlds of uh, nonconformist North London uh, in at the absolute tail end of the 19th century to, um, you know, the opening of the first Garden City in 1904 in such a short time, you know, that that is just extraordinary. And I was, although I knew that that was, had been the fact, you know, how, how that happened was, um, it was very interesting actually to explore all the different factors which made that possible. So that was one thing. Um, another thing which I uh, found uh, pleasing and interesting and has not been um, 
I think considered by other people that have looked at this kind of topic, is the role of women in the early garden city movement. Certainly that doesn't come out in any of the studies that are considering it from the kind of town planning aspect really. But, you know, it's evident. I mean, I've already mentioned Lizzie um, Howard's first wife. She was immensely influential as a Garden City lecturer, you know, somebody who would go and um, speak to women of all uh, types. You know, she was quite happy talking to peeresses of the realm and so on uh, in order to raise money and promote the project. Um, and there were other women who were involved as well. Um, he, Howard, interestingly, actually at one point refers to uh, wanting to express his thanks to the women and men of the Garden City movement. And actually that, you know, that reversal of the normal order of the words is quite interesting because that's not something people did then in the way that modern liturgists do, you know, to refer to women and men. Um, and in terms of the, you know, initial people who were involved with the Garden City, um, Garden City Association, striking number of women. Letchworth, of course, is very close to Cambridge and um, there was uh, significant interest, I think, for some, from some fairly um, feisty, um, you know, Cambridge women who wanted to, um, wanted to promote the idea. So that was one thing, another thing. Uh, and I suppose thirdly, the thing which surprised me and uh, pleased me was being able to uncover the kind of fascinating religious diversity in Edwardian Letchworth. So I've devoted a whole chapter to that. I think it's probably the longest chapter in the book, actually, because, you know, although we're, we're kind of used to the idea of new communities developing and people moving around, but what we see in Letchworth is... Um, everybody being transplanted from somewhere else and that meant that their religion was being transplanted from elsewhere so seeing what happens when kind of late 19th century religion just gets kind of transplanted into edward you know Ed, edwardian Hertfordshire was quite intriguing so you can see that what one discovers is there are some really kind of early ecumenical experiments which go wrong and there's lots of really kind of progressive uh, religious thought of one type or another that is also um, also going on. Uh, and there's quite there's a you know quite a significant Roman Catholic community. Uh, the one thing there isn't really very much of actually is um, Anglicans. Um, it's really striking that the kind of dominant religious culture in uh, in Letchworth and I think also in Early Wellin is kind of nonconformist. You know, nonconformist, curious, slash, searching, um, and you know, whole varieties or whole variety of different types of religious expression. Lots of theosophists as well, lots of Quakers. So, um, really interesting seeing how um, religion can be transplanted into a kind of virgin soil and what happens. So, those are some of the things which I found really interesting. Uh, and perhaps unexpected while I was doing the research. I wonder if also you could comment on the difference between writing a biography and writing an academic monograph, for instance, because I think this is your first biography. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I mean, I've really enjoyed doing it. Obviously, it's different because 
it is structured around uh, approaching an individual in a chronological sort of way. Uh, so it's got, you know, I've got the kind of conventions of a biography is that, you know, after an introduction, we begin with him being born and then we kind of end with him dying. Um, and then, of course, I am trying to um, bring in the religious context as much as as much as I can so that we shed light on that. You know, that's the kind of more of a, the monography end of it, I suppose. Uh, but after I wrote my last book was on Victorian Christianity at the Fantasy Act, which, to be honest, was a real challenge because every chapter was on something completely different. And it just took so much work that I wanted to do something that seemed a little bit easier. Um, so uh, I, yeah, I, I was I was and, and at that point, as I've already mentioned, um, uh, Tim Larson's Spiritual Life series was just coming o- over the horizon. And I know that Tim's method is very, has, you know, he's obviously a very prolific um, religious historian, and his method is often to explore topics through the biographical approach and the case study of, you know, an individual or a group of individuals. Um, so it's been, it's been interesting to do it. Um, yeah. I, I, whether I will write another biography, I don't know, but I would be quite um, intrigued by the possibility of considering it, I think. Well, so thinking, uh, I guess, more about your, your research here, then my final question specifically related to that is what interested you in this avenue of research? I know you already commented on it briefly in the beginning of the podcast, but I wonder if you could say more about your inspiration into Ebenezer Howard. Yeah, well, various things. Uh, I mean, he does, uh, in the last book I wrote on Victorian Christianity at the Fantasec, he does crop up in a chapter I write about um, building the new Jerusalem. So I wrote a few pages about him then. And that kind of gave me the hinge into thinking, and I think this is often the way research works, actually. You're finishing a project and then something in it kind of, says to you, hey, you know, I could be your next project. Um, but the, I suppose the other thing is that, I mean, I come from Hertfordshire. I was born and brought up in Hertfordshire. So um, I've always known about Ebenezer Howard. You know, he at, at school, we were taught um, two things about the history of Hertfordshire. Uh, one that uh, St Alban was, uh, he was always actually described as the first Christian martyr. Of course, he's the first... British Christian martyr, but we were, you know, we were, we were encouraged to be terribly proud of the fact that St Alban was our kind of patron saint, as it were. And then Ebenezer Howard created the Garden Cities at Letchworth and Wellin. So he was there as a kind of, presented to us as a kind of 20th century secular saint. Um, and there are various ways in which he's actually, you know, is kind of... Um, framed in those terms. Um, perhaps I could um, just sort of finish perhaps by saying that um, I discovered, I hadn't realised that this was the case, but an enormous seven foot bronze statue of him uh, was unveiled in the centre of Welling in 2021. And I only discovered this by accident. I was looking at something on the internet and this cropped up. Um, and as we've thought so much about statues and their significance in recent times, 
uh, I was really struck by the fact that, you know, Howard has been cast in bronze and celebrated and is still being celebrated um, by people in Hertfordshire uh, to this very day. Well, thank you so much, Francis. It's been a delight to hear about this biography about Ebenezer Howard, and we look forward to when it comes out. Uh, so it's coming out with the Spiritual Live series, as mentioned earlier, with Oxford University Press. And when do you anticipate it's going to be released? Um, I would think 2023. 2023. So our listeners should stay tuned. And when it comes out, uh, we'll be sure to advertise it, I'm sure, on the EHS. Uh, thank you again for joining us, Francis. Thank you very much, Angela. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be advertised on our social media pages. If you're not currently a member of EHS, we highly recommend you consider doing so. It's a great opportunity to network with other like-minded historians and keep abreast of latest research in the field. More information is on our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com.